My name is Matt, and I have been a fan. Thank you. I have been a fan of Emmaus Church for a really long time. Uh, first of all, I know we already did this, but let's do this again. Let's welcome Spencer and Jordan back. Yeah. I was thinking this week uh, in preparing for this about when Spencer and Jordan were college students, and we had an opportunity to sit uh, in a booth together on campus when you guys were dreaming about this, and when you, this community, uh, you were a dream in their hearts. And as I was thinking about that, and the kinds of uh, desires that God was stirring in their hearts for what a community could look like, and how beautiful it is that you are the reality of that. God has been so faithful to you, and it's beautiful to see it. And thank you for your faithfulness in leading. It's beautiful. Uh, Emmaus Church, I love who you are. I love how you do what you do. I love everything about you. You're an incredible group of people. Big fan. We'll continue to be praying with you. Honored to be a part of this today. Also, another reason I love, I really love Emmaus Church is my brother Josh and his family are a part of this church community. Yeah. Josh is literally one of my heroes. All right. I love this man. He is a deep soul. He is a beautiful human being. He is a compelling and to me, one of the most compelling expressions of what the way of Jesus looks like, an authentic expression of that. So if you don't know Josh, you need to get to know him. Okay. Awesome. Now that I have sufficiently embarrassed my niece and nephew by talking about their dad like that. All right. Awesome. Let's dive in. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to continue on what you've been building on all summer. And so we're going to walk through four pieces in this passage here, just continuing to build on what you have been doing. Uh, and so we're going to look at four different pieces of this chapter. And the first thing that we're going to look at uh, is that continuation of the theme that you've been talking about all summer. So number one, the supremacy of Jesus the supremacy of Jesus. You see that all the way throughout this chapter. The key verses that we're going to be looking at here in the chapter today, we're not going to take the time to read through the entire chapter, but we're going to keep coming back to it over and over again. But the key verses that we're going to look at are the verses that bookend this chapter. And so it opens with an introduction and then concludes uh, with a statement and, and these verses at the end, uh, one that, that introduces and the other that sums up what this entire chapter is about. So the opening statement here in the chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, says this, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then through the rest of the chapter, the author or the preacher here in Hebrews lays out uh, the story of those ancients that he's referring to here and, and what they were, the kind of faith that they were commended for. And then the chapter closes with verses 39 through 40, and it says this, these were all commended for their faith, 
yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Jesus, we just ask that you would teach us today. We love your word. And we know that you are the word made flesh. And we ask that you would be seen, that you would be heard. We open up our minds and our hearts and our souls to you. We give you our preemptive yes to whatever you are pressing us towards today. We desire to hear from you. We desire to move in alignment with you. And we know that that's what you want for us. So what could keep us from that? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the supremacy of Jesus. Uh, as, as you know, Throughout this book, the author or the preacher here, I'll refer to the author as the preacher sometimes as we're going through the sermon uh, today, because really when you look at the, at the way that the book of Hebrews is laid out, yes, it's a letter, uh, but it is structured like a sermon, a very compelling and persuasive sermon, and it's built that way on purpose. So sometimes I'll refer to the author, sometimes I'll refer to the preacher, same person there, okay? Uh, so the author or the preacher of Hebrews has a very clear goal all the way throughout the book. And I love that you chose that as the uh, title for the series throughout the summer, The Supremacy of Jesus, because that is the theme that this author keeps coming back to over and over and over again, the supremacy of Jesus. And the point of this, what the author is trying to get across by pushing the supremacy of Jesus, is the author is trying to encourage this group of people who are Jewish believers. We know that they are Jewish believers and they are facing so much persecution and so much pressure for their faith in Jesus that many of them are beginning to turn back. Many of them are beginning to abandon their faith in Jesus and instead turn back to their previous way of life, step back into Judaism and abandon Jesus. And so throughout the book, this is, this is the goal, to continue to paint the picture that, and we need to be really clear about this, that embracing Jesus is not a rejection of Judaism. That's not what the author is doing here. The author is not rejecting Judaism in favor of Jesus, but instead is saying that Jesus is the completion of Judaism. So that whole history, that whole story gets to make the journey and it finds its completion and its pinnacle in the reality of Jesus. And so this author is not trying to get them to abandon Judaism, but instead is saying, don't abandon Jesus, because Jesus is the logical conclusion. Jesus is the hope that the whole story has been pointing to. Over and over again, the author says, do not shrink back. 
Jesus is worth it. Do not shrink back. Jesus is worth it. This is happening at a time when the persecution is real for them. Sometimes in the American evangelical church, we use that term. We throw that term around a lot. Anytime we face a little bit of social pressure, we like to lean on that and say that we're being persecuted for the cause of Jesus, okay? We need to be really careful with how we use that term. The people in this story are facing death, That word for them carries the weight of life and death. Many of them already, their property has been seized because of their belief in Jesus. They're being thrown in jail. People are losing their lives in this story for the cause of Jesus. A lot is not known about this book. We don't know who the author is. We don't know the exact uh, location of the community that is being written to here. But we do know uh, a couple of things. One, we know that this is a, a group of Jewish Christians for sure. And also we know that this happens and is written somewhere around the same time that the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul have been martyred for the cause of Jesus. Imagine that. Imagine that. That's what this community is facing. Peter and Paul have lost their lives for the cause of Jesus. The most obvious and clear leaders in the early church now put to death because of their faith in Jesus. And yet, in the face of that, the author is saying, do not shrink back just like Peter refused to do, just like Paul refused to do, do not shrink back. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it because Jesus is greater than our history. We honor that full story of the history, but Jesus is greater than history because he is eternity. Jesus is greater than the prophets. We honor the prophets, but Jesus is greater than the prophets because he is the living word of God in the flesh. We honor the messengers, but Jesus is greater than the messengers because he is the message. We honor the law, but Jesus is greater than the law because he fulfills and completes the law. We honor those priests, but Jesus is greater than the priests because he is the once and forever sacrifice for our sins. We honor the kings, but Jesus is greater because his kingdom will know no end. Jesus is greater even than the temple, as beautiful as the temple was. Jesus is even greater than the temple because he is the very living presence of God who now takes up residence in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the miracle of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church at its birth on the day of Pentecost. And now we are mobile moving temples and tabernacles carrying the very presence of God within us. Every single person that we encounter is dangerously close to a life-changing encounter with the very living presence of God. The teachers that we just honored and celebrated as you're setting up your classrooms and as you're getting ready for this new school year, every single student who steps into your classroom dangerously close to a life-changing encounter with the living God because of his presence living within you. Students who are starting college or or high school or, or school this week, every single person that you come into contact with, dangerously close 
with a life-changing encounter because Jesus lives within us. The very presence of God lives within us. So the author and the preacher is saying, do not shrink back. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. The second thing that I see here is this. Uh, So point one, the supremacy of Jesus. Point two, the road to Emmaus. The road to Emmaus. Stick with me on that one, okay? Uh, I love the approach and the literary approach that we see playing out right here uh, throughout this chapter. Uh, A few things that we see happening. One, uh, we can see the theme of faith. Obviously, we talked about in those verses that we read. it's bookending, right? And so we see it presented at the beginning in those first two verses, and we see it summarized at the end in the last two verses. But all the way through, we see the author using this phrase, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. But what the author is doing in that is giving an example each time of a real-life person from the history of Israel uh, and showing how those people are speaking to us today and how their faith is speaking to us today. And so he is looking back over the history and over the story and pointing to the way that Jesus is the culmination of this, pulling in the whole story and saying at every single turn, this story has been pointing to Jesus. And so we see at the very beginning, he even talks about the creation story. He begins with creation and he says, by faith, Abel, and by faith Enoch, and by faith Noah, and by faith Abraham, and by faith Isaac, and by faith Jacob, and by faith Joseph, and by faith Moses, and by faith uh, Rahab, and by faith David, and moves all the way through the history of Israel in that way. It's powerful. It's beautiful. And he's showing how every single turn, at every single turn, this has been pointing ahead to the hope of Jesus. That hope and that faith that finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. It's a beautiful, beautiful literary move here. But it's not original to this author. We see this same approach used multiple times throughout the New Testament. Paul does this quite a bit. Paul does it in his letters, but he also does it in his preaching and in his teaching in the book of Acts. Again and again, we'll see uh, he's being put on trial or someone is questioning him or he's standing up in some assembly to present the truth of the gospel in that environment. And over and over again, he uses this kind of approach. He walks back through the whole story and says the whole thing has been been pointing to this culmination and this pinnacle and this fulfillment of Jesus. But it's not original to Paul either. We see Peter doing this as well. Peter does this throughout the book of Acts. When he's put on trial, he even does it uh, on the day of Pentecost at the birth of the church. He walks back through the history and says, Every single piece of this has been pointing ahead and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, preaches a sermon that costs him his life. And in that sermon, he does the same thing. He makes the same approach. It's not original to the author of Hebrews. It's not original to Paul or to Peter or to Stephen. All of them borrow it from someone else. Anyone have a guess? Jesus. All right. Well done. Okay. The supremacy of Jesus again. Okay. Jesus does this. Anyone know one example where we see Jesus do this? 
The road to Emmaus. It's there, guys. It's right there, all right? Good. Good. The road to Emmaus. I love this. Luke chapter 24. Jesus appears to two disciples who are walking along the road to Emmaus, from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They are distraught. They are brokenhearted. They are disoriented. They are confused because they have witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus, who they believed would be the Messiah, who would deliver the people of Israel and fulfill the promises of God and usher in the kingdom of God. They witnessed his crucifixion, which was gut-wrenching and heartbreaking and crushing for them. But then on top of that, now they're disoriented and confused because they're hearing rumors begin to swirl that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And in the midst of their confusion, Jesus himself shows up. I love this story. I love it. Jesus himself shows up. And one of the things that he begins to do is he begins to walk them back through the whole story. He loves this approach. And even Jesus is telling them as he walks them back through the story how every turn of every page has been pointing ahead to the fulfillment that we find in Jesus. I love it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I love that that's where you take your name. If you didn't know that, that's where you get your name as a church. I love it. I think that is a stroke of genius. And here's why. I have a friend who has said that in the past, people really put a lot of focus on what you might call a Damascus Road experience, right? Drawing on that image of where Paul is walking along the road and he gets completely blindsided by the presence of Jesus, knocked backwards in this confrontation of the truth where it just all comes unraveled for him in this moment. And there's a place for that. And we see that happening in people's lives. But my friend said, I think that this generation that we're in now responds much more, not just to a Damascus road, but to an Emmaus road approach. Not with just this blunt confrontation of the truth that knocks you backwards, but a journey along with friends walking people through the story, journeying with them. And where does the Emmaus story culminate? Around a table when they're sharing this meal together. And it's at the breaking of the bread that it says their eyes were finally opened. They were walking with Jesus himself and it took them the whole journey. It took them the whole journey and it finally clicked around a table in shared relationship. And that was the turning point moment. So I think your name is a stroke of genius. I love it. It's beautiful. And I pray that it will continue to empower and set the direction for how you live as a community of Jesus in this community of Greensboro. So we see that this is the approach of Jesus himself. And it's genius. Okay, it's genius to walk people all the way back through the story and to say the whole story has been pointing ahead to Jesus. I love how the author of Hebrews teaches us, just like Jesus taught us, this is how you read the Bible. This is how you read the Bible. You have to see the whole thing as a complete story, and the central part of the story is Jesus. The centrality of Jesus here to the story. We have to see that, and Jesus teaches us this, that Jesus, the life and ministry and teachings, along with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, come together to form a lens through which we read Scripture. 
We read all of scripture through that lens, through the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus, as well as the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the complete and full ministry of Jesus. We read it all through that interpretive lens. Jesus is our interpretive lens for how we read scripture, engage with scripture, teach scripture, and understand scripture. Okay? But here's the thing. We understand, we see it very plainly here that we're supposed to read backwards through Scripture, through the lens of Jesus, okay? We also read forwards through Scripture, through the lens of Jesus, okay? Jesus is how we interpret everything that Paul writes, everything that Peter writes, everything that John writes. Jesus is the lens through which we interpret everything. And if there is a place where your interpretation of Scripture clearly does not align with the life ministry, teachings, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, guess who is wrong? Okay? Okay, do not try to make Jesus bend towards your worldview. Do not try to use Jesus. Do not try to hijack and use Jesus to fit your worldview. You fit his worldview. Okay? You bow to Jesus. That's how it works. And that sounds harsh or strong. That's the most graceful thing we could possibly say. Okay? That's the mo- we'll get more into that in just a minute about how much we can trust Jesus in that. But if there comes a point where we're not, our reading of Scripture comes out of alignment with Jesus, he's got to be the lens through which we read that. And Jesus wins. Okay, Jesus wins in that collision. So real quick, uh, I'm just going to take a brief side step here uh, in how we read Scripture like this, looking back and understanding this full scope of Scripture. Okay, everybody just hold up five fingers real quick. Hold your hands up. Okay, this is something that I teach my kids and we go over in what I call our carpool catechism when I'm driving them to school. Okay, you can put your hands down. You don't have to keep them up the whole time but a way to help remember the big sweep of the story of Scripture. Oftentimes when we approach the Old Testament, it can be very confusing for us. It can be troubling, uh, and that's very real. Uh, But real quickly, just a way to understand the scope of Scripture and the story of Scripture. Throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, God makes five core covenants with His people. And the people of Israel read the scriptures through the lens of those five covenants, okay? There's the covenant of creation with Adam and Eve. There's the covenant with Noah. There's the covenant with Abraham. There's the covenant with Moses. And there's the covenant with David. And as you read through scripture, you'll see that each of those five covenants find their perfect fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And it's absolutely beautiful as you read through those stories and you see the ways in which they are all pointing ahead to Jesus. So I just say that as a real quick um, statement, maybe for someone who is here who has struggled with the Old Testament, that's a really quick timeline. It's a very base and baseline kind of timeline for understanding the uh, flow of the Old Testament and how all of that is pointing ahead 
to the people of Jesus, uh, to the reality of Jesus. So you may want to go through that on your own carpool, all right, as you're driving yourself to work or school. Okay, Uh, so number one, the supremacy of Jesus. Number two, the road to Emmaus. We read scripture through that lens of the reality of who Jesus is, just like Jesus taught us in the road to Emmaus and just like the author of Hebrews is challenging us here by walking us through this history. Number three, the essence of, of faith. Number three, the essence of faith. Beautiful definition that we get of faith here, and then all of these examples that support what that actually looked like played out in the real world. This beautiful definition that we often come back to over and over again. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Stirring, beautiful definition. And yet oftentimes this definition gets used in a way that brings about harm and pain within the life of the church. Can we talk about that for a minute? Okay, now as we get into that, I realize that there are kind of two ends of the spectrum that I want to be really careful on here, okay? Number one is a person of tender faith, a person of uh, faith that is freshly awakened, and God is stirring something new in you, and you have this sense, this deep sense of belief, And the Holy Spirit is drawing you into this prayer life in which he's saying, trust me, ask for it, watch this come to be. Okay, if that's you, in no way am I trying to dampen that or undercut that at all. Okay, everybody agree that that's not what we're trying to do. Okay, great. On the other end of the spectrum, there are people who have been deeply hurt by the use even of the word faith. You were trusting for something. You were hoping for something. And people told you, if you had enough faith, God will do this for you. And it did not happen. And you are still carrying the wounds of that. Okay? If that's you in the room today, just know that as we're walking through this, I promise I will do my best to tread lightly there. I honor that hurt. I honor that pain. I have experienced that myself. Okay? So I... As we walk through this, just know that I have those two ends of the spectrum in mind, and I don't intend in any way to undercut or to hurt either of those perspectives, okay? So when this lays out for us this beautiful statement about an essence of faith, the essence of faith, one of the things that we have to realize is this. Our faith is not in our faith. Okay? Our faith is not in our faith. Somewhere along the way, specifically in the American evangelicalism brand of Christianity, we have started to make this connection and to see faith as a currency that we can use to win God over. That if we have the right kind of faith, then we can win God's favor and we can bend God's will towards ours. 
We talk about wanting to do great things for God. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. I hope you do. I believe that you can. But faith begins not when we talk about what great things we can do for God, but when we open our eyes and recognize what great things he has already done. And then we put our allegiance and our trust in alignment with that. Okay? Faith is not a power that we use to bend reality to our will. Faith is not a power that we use to bend reality toward our will. Christian faith, as we see described and lived out in the New Testament, instead is about allegiance plus trust. Faith equals allegiance plus trust. Allegiance to Jesus. In other words, we say, not my will be done, but your will be done. And trust, knowing that however that plays out, we can trust the goodness and the heart of a God that we know loves us. Faith is allegiance plus trust. Our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in Jesus. Okay? Our faith is in Jesus. So we have to handle this carefully. And in the church, when we talk about faith, and again, I don't want to undercut any kind of fresh awakening that the Holy Spirit is moving and doing here. I'm not undercutting that. I'm adding this into that conversation. Okay? But we have to remember that if we're not careful with how we use those terms, if we're not careful with how we call people into faith, then something that is designed for hope and trust can actually become defeating and painful and traumatizing. In many cases, re-traumatizing for people. I have been told before, I personally have been told that a loved one who is going through an illness that would end up taking her life, I have been told that the breakthrough in healing was connected to the level of my faith. That is a painful experience. How do I get my mind around the fact of a God that I know loves her, that I know she loves so much? And a God who loves me and that I love him. Why would he punish her? Because my faith didn't reach a certain threshold. Does that make sense? No, no. Please don't tell someone in that situation that their faith is too small. Really? That's why a person is experiencing healing because Another loved one's faith is too small. Really? Let me challenge you. If that's your view of it, I think your understanding of faith is too small. I think there's a misunderstanding of faith there. And if you have experienced that and been through that pain, understand that's not what this passage is talking about. Faith by itself is not what Jesus commands. He, he commands faith in him, faith towards him. It isn't just faith. It's faith in him. That's where we place it. Our faith is not in our faith. It's not about the boldness. It's not about the size. It's not about the depth. It's not about the purity or any other quality of our faith. It is about the object of our faith that matters. Yes, 
it takes great faith to believe that a miracle can happen. If you're praying for a miracle, keep praying with deep faith. Keep praying for deep faith. God can do that. And God is drawing you into an engagement with that. If you're praying for a miracle, keep praying for that. It takes great faith to believe that a miracle can happen. But perhaps it takes greater faith to still believe when it doesn't. As we look at the passage here, the passage gives us the context for understanding that verse that we often lift out and use as a standalone definition for faith. The passage gives us the context for what this looks like. And the passage is saying to us, don't be fooled, don't be blind. We often refer to this passage as the champions of faith, but we realize that the reason that these women and men are listed as champions of faith is not because of the character of the, or quality of their faith. It's because of the object of their faith. And that's what this passage is challenging us towards. Our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in Jesus, our allegiance and trust to go where he leads, to walk in his way and to live as he lived. Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, so revolutionary, compelling, and beautiful. He teaches us the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, as Jesus is there on the hillside teaching the people and turning the world upside down with these revolutionary thoughts, Jesus tells us that part and part of that prayer, we should pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. But it's one thing for Jesus to pray that on the hillside surrounded by people who are hanging on every word that he's teaching. It's completely different to see Jesus praying that in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's weeping under the weight of this anxiety over what he is facing as he is going to the cross. And he prays, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Did the cup pass from Jesus? Did Jesus ask, Father, let the cup pass from me? Okay. Did the cup pass? Jesus has experienced and understands the sting of no. And Jesus' answer in the face of that is, yet not my will, but your will be done. To ask in Jesus' name is not a magic formula to make something happen. To ask in Jesus's name is a radical declaration and confession of faith. Just like you place the name of a king over something, then that king's reign is over that. And so when we pray that, we're sealing that prayer and saying, Jesus, you are king, and we ask in your name, which brings about power and authority like we cannot believe. And at the same time, it's a confession of surrender. Your will be done, not mine. Your will be done. That is the essence of faith. Yes, it is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see, but not in a way that just bends reality towards our will. It's to say, I am sure of what I hope for and my hope is in Jesus. I am sure of Jesus. I am sure of Jesus and I am certain of what I do not see. Just not what I want to hope uh, manifest and materialize, but 
certain of what I cannot see, which is I cannot see that God's will is moving and I trust it no matter what. I trust it no matter what. I've gone too long. I've already preached too long. All right, so last point I'm going to make quick, okay? Uh, I, I will do my best, all right? Uh, number four is this, the scandal of love. The scandal of love. So the supremacy of Jesus, the road to Emmaus, the essence of faith, and the scandal of love. What we see in this passage is a beautiful example of what it looks like to come to terms with our belovedness. The theologian Paul Tillich says that faith is the trust to accept acceptance. The trust to accept acceptance. In other words, as the great Brennan Manning would say, to believe that you, that you are loved. To believe that you are loved as you are, not as you should be, because none of us are as we should be. As you are in this moment, you are loved. Faith is coming to terms with the reality of our belovedness. So in light of that, do you have faith? Do you believe? Do you believe this radical notion that Jesus wants you with your broken past, with your blemished record, that you might be listed alongside the names like Moses? Moses who brought freedom to an enslaved nation and at the same time carried with him that broken past of being a murderer. Moses, who brings God's law to God's people and yet at the same time was a fugitive on the run from the law. Rahab, the prostitute. King David, a betrayer, a murderer. And I don't call him an adulterer, even though he had sex with Bathsheba, who was not his wife. I don't call him an adulterer. Here's why. That was not an affair. David is the king in a patriarchal society. He's also not just the political leader, but the spiritual leader in the eyes of the people. All of the power was on David's side. We don't just brush that off as a, as a passionate affair. That was an abuse of power from a person who had all of the power on his side. And yet David is in this list. Why? Is it because grace just looks the other way? No. No. Grace dares to look sin dead in the eye, to call it what it is, to call out the injustice of it, to demand accountability. That's what grace does draws us into repentance, into confessing the reality of the brokenness of that sin, and then, as scandalous as it is, to embrace our belovedness as God forgives us of those sins and transforms us through his grace. This passage shows us the scandal of love. Every single person on this list is a failure. <laughs> And yet, they have been transformed into what we remember as champions of faith. Even their failures are transformed into stunning sermons on the unswerving faithfulness of God. Because when we have faith, 
God is faithful. And when we lose faith, God is still faithful because he can't be anything but faithful. That is who he is. A closer look at this list breaks through the stained glass legacies and reveals the reality that God redeems failures. Not just looks the other way at the reality of those pasts, but brings us into confession, the accountability that comes along with repentance and into redemption. It is not a weak version of grace. It is a grace so strong that the God of the universe gave his life to bring it into reality. We see in this list, wild people who are courageous enough to accept acceptance to come to terms with the reality of their belovedness, to dare to believe the ridiculous notion that God would love even them, and then to order their lives around that sustaining faith. Their actions of heroic faith aren't aimed at winning or earning or deserving or keeping God's love. Instead, they're simply aimed at loving God back. Faith is allegiance plus trust. And we must be sure that our allegiance and trust is aimed at Jesus. It's not in our faith. It's in Jesus. That's where we want to keep it. That's where we have to keep it. There are many of you who may be struggling in your faith and you might be considering Stepping back. You might be considering turning away. Maybe the questions have gotten to a point where they're just too heavy and they're too overwhelming and you can't make sense of it anymore. Maybe you look around at the reality of what you see of people who carry the name of Christian and it breaks your heart so much and it breaks your trust so much that you don't even want to be associated with that word anymore. And it has shaken you so deeply that you are at a point where you're wondering if you can take another step forward. Maybe you're saying, look, I'm not at the point where I want to shrink back, but I'm certainly not at a point where I want to take a step forward. I don't have the trust right now. I want to challenge you, just like we've been talking about all the way through here. I want to challenge you to look at Jesus. And the reality is, yes, Christians, Christianity, the church. I'm not here to down the church. I love the church. So don't don't get upset about that. If we can't take, if we can't be honest about reality, then we just need to quit. Okay? So we can be honest about that. Don't get offended by that. Okay? We can be honest about the reality that in many ways Christians have earned the titles of hypocrite, anti-intellectual, judgmental, hateful. Can we own that? It's real. We see it. And sometimes you see it so much that you wonder if you can even take a step forward. 
and stay associated with this thing. If that's you, I want to tell you today, I have empathy for you. I really do. And some of those questions I struggle with myself in some ways. So I have empathy for you. But I also want to challenge you. And I want to tell you this. Are Christians hypocritical? Yeah. Are Christians judgmental? Yes. Are Christians at times hateful? Yes. Is Jesus hypocritical? No. Is Jesus judgmental? No. Is Jesus hateful? No. What's the one word that everyone still in our culture today would associate first with Jesus? What's the one word that comes to mind when you think of Jesus? Love and good. Beautiful. Beautiful. People who want nothing to do with Christianity, people who are completely opposed in all of their being to Christianity will confess that there is something compelling about Jesus. Is Jesus those things? No. Here's the good news. Christianity has never been about Christians. It's always been about Jesus. And even in this chapter about champions of the faith, it's still, it's pointing us beyond these people and it's pointing us to Jesus. It's not about them either. And it's not about you. And it's not about the Christians that you see who are hypocritical, judgmental, and hateful and anti-intellectual. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. So if you're in that point and you're wrestling over whether or not you want to take another step forward, let me challenge you. Face Jesus wrestle with the reality of Jesus. After that, if you've wrestled with Jesus and you think, I still don't want to be a part of this, that's fair. But if you walk away based on Christians, that is not an intellectually honest conclusion to come to because it's never been about Christians. It's always been about Jesus. And I want to encourage you that even as I have wrestled through some of those things myself, the thing that has held me fast is the reality of who Jesus is. And I want to tell you, like the author of Hebrews was saying to that audience then, and it still echoes to us today, we are sensing pressure. I understand that. It is a difficult time to believe in many ways. I understand that. Do not shrink back. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it.